Good morning, everyone. You know, one of the first signs that we see when the uh, Christmas season is approaching is lights going up in different places. Uh, odd places sometimes, um, but houses, trees, bushes, fences, almost everything gets some kind of light treatment. Uh, and in some cases, some folks really go all out and uh, put a lot of lights everywhere. And we all enjoy seeing them, don't we? Uh, we like to go around and see those places that uh, have been decorated with light. Well, why is that? Why do we, why do we include light in the celebration of the Christmas season of the birth of Jesus? Well, the story of Jesus' birth is a story about light. John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's what this is all about. The light of God is coming into the world. Luke chapter 2 and verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around, shone round about them. The glory of God shining on them. They saw a great light. The wise men, as we've read about earlier, who were looking for the king. They were doing so because they saw a star. They saw a bright light in the heavens. And they somehow knew from that star that there was a new king of the Jews born uh, in Judea. And so they traveled to Judea. And then once they had found out they needed to go to Bethlehem, that same star showed them the exact spot where the child was born. And so today we continue to celebrate his birth with lights, all kinds of lights. But we'd be remiss if we overlooked the fact that there is a deep and terrible darkness in the story of Jesus also. And that darkness is personified in the person of Herod the king, who was the first, but by no means the last, who tried to destroy Jesus when he came into the world. Think about that. As soon as he came into the world, there were people trying to destroy him. Who was this King Herod that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1? It was in the days of Herod the king when Jesus was born in Judea, we're told. Well, he was the Jewish king. The Jews, as you know, were under the rulership of Rome, the domination of Rome. But the Romans allowed the Jews to have their own king as long as that king played ball with the Romans and enforced their policies and did whatever the Romans wanted him to do. And that's who Herod was. He's what's described as a puppet king or a, a client king. He ruled for quite some time, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and 4 B.C. is when he died. Now that kind of throws us off a little bit when we start thinking about that because we think, well, that means Jesus was born B.C. because he was born while Herod was still king, and that's right. There's an, a glitch in our calendars. Now they were supposed to be calculated from the year of Jesus' birth, but they're not. Uh, but we know that Herod was still living when Jesus was born, and he died in 4 B.C., so that helps us know a little bit more accurately the date of our Savior's birth. Well, to also understand that Herod was despised by his own people. He was not a popular king. He was a hated king. And there were at least four reasons why he was despised. First of all, because he did represent the interests of Rome, and so they saw him as a traitor who was helping the occupying power. And nobody took kindly to that. They didn't like the fact that he was helping those who had their feet up on the necks of the people. 
Another reason they despised him is because he was not fully Jewish. He was only half Jewish. He was what's called an Idumean or an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And he had one non-Jewish parent, and so they really despised that. He's really not one of us, they thought, and they said. Uh, and so they looked down on him because of that. Uh, third, he was a deeply irreligious man. He was not a devout practicing Jew. He did not uphold their faith. In fact, he even built pagan temples for pagan idols in Judea uh, during his <clears throat> tenure because that's pleased the Romans. And so he, far from being a devout Jew, he was a devout idolater. And then the fourth reason is because he was simply a brutal tyrant. Herod was paranoid. He was afraid of anybody that he thought might be a threat to his rulership. And so he'd have them killed. You, he didn't, you didn't really have to do anything. You just had to appear to maybe do something or be a potential threat. Herod would have you killed. He did that to three of his own sons, a lot of other people close to him. He did not pay to be close to Herod. One of the uh, Roman emperors once quipped regarding Herod that it was safer to be his pig than to be his son. Uh, the Greek words for pig and son are very similar to one another, and knowing the uh, Jewish dislike for uh, pork and for swine, he was playing on that when he said it's safer to be his pig than to be his son. He's less likely to kill a pig than his own son. That's Herod. He was a brutal tyrant. He was a vicious man. He was deeply paranoid. And yet in history, he is known as Herod the Great. Isn't that odd? Herod the Great. What was it that made him great? Well, the Romans liked him. He was a, an efficient ruler. Tyrants often are. Have you ever noticed that? Tyrants are very often people, they can get things done because they'll kill you if you don't do what, what they want. And so he was an efficient ruler. He represented the interests of Rome, and they thought he was good because of that. But he's remembered most of all because of his building projects. He was a builder, and he oversaw uh, a lot of building during those years that he was the king of the Jews. For example, the port city of Caesarea had a, an artificial harbor, and the city itself was built from the ground up. There was no Caesarea until Herod came along, and he built it, and of course, named it in honor of the Caesars to flatter them. And he built that harbor, and he built that city, and that city was six times the size of most ancient cities. And so he built that, and he built fortresses all over Judea. That was part of his paranoia. He wanted to be sure that if uh, a rebellion broke out, he had a place to hide. And so he built fortresses, two of the most famous. Uh, one of them was the Antonia Fortress, which was built right on the corner of the temple complex itself so that the Romans could look right down into the temple courtyard and see if any trouble was brewing. Another was a fortress known as Masada that you may have heard of, where uh, 700 uh, Jewish rebels in a later revolt against Rome uh, stood, uh, withstood a siege of two years. And then finally, when the Romans got up to the top of it, the story goes, they had all committed suicide. Herod built that fortress upon Masada. But his, his most important work, and the one for which he was most remembered, was his expansion of the temple in Jerusalem. You remember when the temple was built, the second temple? Remember that some of the old folks cried when they saw it because they remembered the first one? And the first one was so beautiful, and the first one was so so wonderful and so elaborate, and then the, the one that they had built to replace it after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians just wasn't much. 
and, and they wept over it because they remember the grandeur of the Solomon's temple. Well, Herod came along and he decided to change all of that, and so he built this massive temple complex, a huge uh, complex of buildings, and it was beautiful and, and it was impressive. And you, you remember that's why the disciples were sitting with Jesus on the Temple Mount, and they were looking at that, and they said to Jesus, Look at these great stones and look at these beautiful buildings. <clears throat> Isn't this something magnificent? That was the doing of Herod the Great. And so he was remembered uh, for that. <clears throat> so history reveals <clears throat> Herod the Great to be a, a very complex man, a very complex man. But for all of his achievements, he's remembered most of all in Scripture for one thing, being a mass murderer. That's what he was remembered for most of all. And that's what Matthew 2 talks about. Here's the story of Herod according to Matthew 2. Verses 1 to 3, he apparently did not know about Jesus' birth. Uh, these wise men came uh, from the east, perhaps as much as a year or more after the birth of Jesus, not at the time, but afterward. And they asked him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They thought, surely the current king will know where the new king is going to be born, but he didn't. And so he had to assemble all of the uh, chief priests and the scribes, and he had to ask them, where, where is the Messiah to be born? What does the scripture say about that? And they told him what Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 said. Now, Herod should have known Micah 5 too, shouldn't he? He's the king of the Jewish people. He should have known this, but he didn't. So he had to ask the experts, and the experts were able to tell him uh, about that. And verse 3 says that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now why was Herod troubled? He's troubled because he perceives one of those threats of which he was always so frightened. A new king has been born. Something's got to be done. But notice that the verse also says, and all Jerusalem with him. Why were they upset? Why were they troubled? When you have a tyrant like Herod troubled, nobody's safe. And they knew it. They knew that Herod being troubled meant trouble for more people. It meant danger. And so they were troubled with him. Of all people, Herod should have known about the birth of the new king, but he didn't. Chief priests and the scribes told him, and they knew exactly where he was to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people, Israel. They knew that text. They knew it backward and forward. I, I doubt they hesitated a moment when Herod asked them. I, I just feel like they said, Oh, Herod, everybody knows that. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And they quoted it to him, and then Herod knew where it was. But here's the interesting thing. Those chief priests and those scribes knew where, they knew where the new king was going to be born. But they didn't go worship him. They were right, but they were not righteous. They knew something, but they didn't act on it. They should have been compelled to go and worship him themselves. It turns out he's in Bethlehem of Judea, which is, what, seven miles maybe from Jerusalem. He's right down the road. He's right over there. And they didn't bother to go worship him. They didn't make any efforts at all to go and worship the newborn king. 
Verses 7 and 8 tells us that Herod commissions the wise men to go and find the child. He brings them in secretly. Notice that? The text said secretly and, and says, go and find him and then come back and report to me that I too may go and worship him. And they probably would have done that. They didn't know what Herod's intentions were. They probably would have come back to Herod and said, well, he's right down the road here in Bethlehem. He's at 1114 Main Street or however. Uh, you know, he's there in that stable and you can find him there. He probably would have done that except they were warned. They received, received divine intervention, a divine warning. Don't, don't go back and tell Herod about this. Go home, but go by another way. Don't even go back to Jerusalem. Go home by another way, and that's what they did. But God knew that Herod wasn't going to stop trying to kill Jesus, and so verses 13 and 14 says <clears throat> that God knew that Herod was looking for the king but not to worship him, and so Joseph was warned in a dream, and he takes Mary, and he takes Jesus, and he flees to Egypt. He's got to get away. He's got to get out of Herod's jurisdiction. He's got to get this child out of harm's way because he knows Herod will not stop at trying to kill him. The last recorded act, recorded act of Herod in verses 16 through 18, and what he's most remembered for, is that he had all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years old, and under, put to death just to get rid of that one. And it didn't even work. Now, secular history does not record this event. And skeptics like to point that out. <clears throat> well, only Matthew says that. Well, that's true. But secular history tells us that this is exactly the kind of thing that Herod would have done. It was nothing to him to kill those baby boys. It was nothing to him to try to wipe out a generation to protect himself. And so there's every reason to believe that this is accurate. It's consistent with what we know about him. It was nothing new for him to do that kind of thing. But his evil lived on. Look at verse 22. It says, in the person of his son, Archelaus, because when Joseph learned that Archelaus, even though Herod had died, he learned that Archelaus was ruling in his father's place. He knew that Archelaus was just as bad. Herod had, had indoctrinated his son with all of his evil ways. And so Joseph knew not to go back to Bethlehem. And so instead they went to Nazareth, and that fulfilled a prophecy that said he shall be called a Nazarene. And that's the end of the story of Herod. Well, you'll never see any of that on a Christmas card, will you? Will you? If somebody sends you a Christmas card and it's got something about Herod the Great on it, they probably don't like you. <clears throat> that's not the best part of the Christmas story. That's not the part we like to remember. So why do we remember it? Why do we need to talk about it? Why do we need to even think about it? In the midst of all the, all the beauty and the love and the glory and the light and everything else having to do with the birth of Jesus, why think about the darkness of Herod the king? Well, we need to do that because it highlights exactly why Jesus came and what he came to do. It's a very important statement in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared, and notice this, the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. In other words, Jesus came to reverse 
the process of sin and death. God created everything good, the book of Genesis said. Satan enters in and corrupts that, does everything he can to destroy it, introduces sin and death into human existence, and that's what life has been about ever since. It's been about sin and death. Everybody who's ever lived has been a sinner. Everybody who's ever lived has died. It's all about sin and death. Jesus comes to reverse that process. Herod, was the monster that he was, was merely a tool of Satan. He's someone through whom Satan was working in his constant war against God's highest creation, and that's you and that's me. God's highest creation is not the mountains and it's not the oceans and it's not the whales and it's, it's not all that other stuff that people sometimes worship, as great as they are. <laughs> Those things declare the glory of God. They reveal his handiwork. But you and I are made in his image. And Satan wants more than anything to destroy that. And he wants to bring death. And so he worked through Herod to try to stop the one who was coming to reverse that process. Do you remember the episode in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 27? When the enemies of Jesus accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. You remember that? They had seen Jesus cast out demons, and they couldn't deny that he did it. By the way, did you notice that in the New Testament and in later Jewish literature for five centuries at least, nobody ever said Jesus was not a miracle worker. Nobody ever tried to say he was fake. Nobody ever accused him of being a phony. What he did was indisputable. So when they could not question his power, they questioned the source. And in Mark 3, they said, well, it's only by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another word for Satan. It's only by the power of Satan that he casts out Satan. That's how he's able to do this. He's a sorcerer. He's able to cast out Satan by the power of Satan. Jesus, first of all, responded to that by pointing out how illogical it was. Would Satan cast out Satan? If the demons are doing the work of Satan, would Satan come along and undo the work of his own henchmen? Why would he do that? He said, that, that doesn't make any sense. Then he says this, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the stronger man plundering the strong man's house. He says, nobody... Nobody can plunder the house of a strong man unless you first bind the strong man. Then you can plunder his house. In other words, that's what Jesus is doing. He came and he bound Satan so that he could plunder his house, so he could take what Satan had captured, so he could set you and me free. What Jesus was doing was plundering the house of Satan in order to reverse the process of sin and death. No wonder Herod and all the Jewish leaders were out to get him. Listen, you don't plunder Satan's house without things getting bloody. You just don't do it. He's not going to allow it. He's all about sin and death. Have you ever noticed when you start trying to do better in your life spiritually, trying to overcome some moral obstacle in your life, some sin, some temptation, have you ever noticed how much harder it gets? The harder you try, the harder it gets to do. Why is that? Satan doesn't want to let go of you. 
He doesn't want to let go of you. So when the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to reverse the process of sin and death, Satan threw everything he had at him. From the time of his birth on, he was trying to destroy him. Jesus came and suffered the high price of going to the cross for your sake and for mine. That's why he came. And that's why the story of Herod is important because it reminds us this is exactly why he came. Because we live in a sin and death world. The other reason why we need to pay attention to Herod's story is because it, it's such a beautiful illustration of the fact that nobody, nobody ever succeeds in opposing God. They never do. People can oppose God, but they never get away with it. They never get through the process. They never <laughs> succeed in doing it. Have you noticed the times in reading Matthew chapters 1 and 2? And I'd, I'd encourage you to do this with your own, own Bible. Just sit down and maybe mark it or highlight it or uh, you know, put a grease mark if it's a screen, whatever you do. Uh, but notice the times in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 that it talks about Scripture being fulfilled it says something like this, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet or something of that nature. It happens over and over again in the first two chapters of Matthew. First of all, he says this happened in chapter uh, 1, verses 22 and 23. The, the birth of Jesus to, or, to a virgin. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That happened to fulfill something God had said 800 years earlier in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Uh, in Bethlehem of Judea is where Jesus was going to be born. Why? Because that's what the Scripture said. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of, of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Why did they know that? Because the scripture had said it a long time before. Joseph takes his little family and flees to Egypt. And then later he comes back. And Matthew says, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And then when all those children were killed. And all those mothers of Bethlehem were weeping. Matthew said this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Rachel weeping for her children. It fulfilled what Jeremiah had said. And then Joseph takes his family. He can't go back to Bethlehem because that's in Archelaus' territory. And so he goes to Nazareth up in Galilee. And Matthew said, this happened to fulfill what was spoken. He shall be called a Nazarene. What does all that tell you? It tells you that God is controlling what takes place. God is superintending it. God is overseeing it. God is making sure that no matter what Herod does, no matter what the Jewish leaders do, no matter what the wise men do or don't do, no matter what anybody does, 
His will is not going to be defeated. It's all part of a plan. It's all part of God's plan. And nobody, not Herod of the Pharisees, not Satan himself, is going to stop that plan from being carried out. And finally, Jesus does allow himself to be arrested and crucified, and he dies. But even death, even death can't stop the plan of God because he rose from the dead. Here's the thing to remember about the story of the birth of Jesus. It's incomplete until we think ahead and remember the cross and the resurrection. He's born into the world. Why? To die on that cross and be raised from the dead to fulfill the plan of God and nothing on earth could possibly stop that. That's why he came. That's why he came. Why is this important? I'll tell you why. Because there are so many people in this world who are willing to pay homage to the baby in the manger and turn their backs on the Christ of the cross. You see, the sweet story about the baby in the manger really appeals, doesn't it? That sells. You can put that on a poster, you can put it on a car, you can put it anywhere until the atheists come along and want to rip it down. But people like that, people, that appeals to people. That's a, that's a good, good, fine, sweet story. But then you start talking to them about, did you know that Jesus died for your sin? I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. People don't want to know that they're sinners. They don't want to be told that. They don't want to have to acknowledge that they are lost and will be forever if they don't turn to Christ. Well, now you're a bigot. See, first you were telling me a nice, sweet story. Now you're some kind of bigot because you're telling me that I've got to have this crucified and risen Savior in my life or I can't have eternity with God. That's exactly what Scripture says. That's exactly the truth. And so you've got all kinds of people who are willing to say, oh, that story about the baby, that's just so wonderful. But that, that part about the cross, that's just too messy. That doesn't appeal to me. I don't, I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. That's both unrealistic and useless for people to pay attention to the baby but not to the crucified Christ. You remember what Jesus said? If any man would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he said. He calls us not to gather around a manger. He calls us to pick up our own cross. He calls us to live bearing that cross every day that we live because the truth is it's not as attractive as the story of the baby in the manger, but the truth is we live in a Herod world. We live in a Herod world. If you don't believe it, just watch the news. If you don't believe it, just read the paper. If you don't believe it, just look around. We live in a Herod world, a world of sin and death. And we have to be realistic about that, that we have to have deliverance from that world of sin and death. And our only hope, our only hope is that Christ who went to the cross for us and was raised from the dead. That's the real story of Jesus coming. And you are part of of the story because he came for you as much as he did for anybody else on the face of this earth. He came to call you to follow him. He came to call you because you're a sinner facing death. 
and a sinner facing judgment. And he wants to give you life. That's the good news. You can live forever in the presence of God if you follow that crucified and risen Lord. If you're ready to do that, if you're ready to change your life to that degree and let God change your life and give you that new birth, we want you to come and tell us about that, that you're ready to do that. And we will be happy to show you in Scripture how that new life begins, to show you what the path is out of darkness and into light. Because that really is why he came, was to bring you out of darkness into light. Next step is yours. Let's stand together and sing.